As you stand in body or spirit, we'll come before the word of God, very likely as the disciples would have by reciting what they called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4, it means to listen. Jesus, of course, made it the basis for the great commandment. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we will join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We're spending the summer in Genesis and we're in chapter three today, the first 10 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from any tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Many of you, I'm a fan of the San Antonio Spurs, uh, partly because I live in San Antonio, I suppose partly because of uh, five championship banners, but partly because it's been pointed out the past couple of weeks, they are typically an organization free of the sort of drama that surrounds other NBA teams. And so uh, I couldn't help but think of what happened when, um, when Kawhi's um, uh, Leonard's uh, uncle or whomever in his party um, lets, uh, lets the world know that he's, he wants to be traded. And ESPN had to like stop their programming and get in the middle of it. And every talking head they could put in front of a camera, they put in front of them as they scrambled to to bring us the latest. Even Magic Johnson from the Lakers had to get on TV and say, if I can't bring in a free agent by next summer, uh, I'll quit or fire me. And out of the Spurs camp for a week and a half, not a single word. I mention that because I think that is part of what attracts me to them. They, they seem, on the outside, let's say, I don't know the inner workings, to be a little less resistant, I mean, more resistant to the sort of anxiety that drives other organizations and other people. And so they tend to stay calmer. They tend to know that time can be on their side if, if they're wise. I mention all this because if, as I've told you before, the days we live in are very anxious on, on so many levels. And I think the key to life is learning how to live as calmly as possible in the face of anxiety. And I tell you that because Genesis 3 is a story of what happens in the face of anxiety. Eve become extremely anxious about their situation. And so they make um, a series of bad choices. 
One of the things that I've learned from counseling is the phrase that anxiety makes us stupid. Sometimes when we're very anxious, we don't always make the best decision possible. And so I wanted to kind of look at the decisions that Adam and Eve made and why they made them. Now, not everybody uses this text this way. A number of people will say, well, Adam and Eve is a story of the fall and how they sinned. And because that, every one of us is condemned to sin forever. It's our destiny. You can look at it like that. But I would rather look at it this morning, not as Adam and Eve's story, but as our story or my story. Or as one scholar says, I look at Adam and Eve and go, yeah, I'm like that sometimes. And so one of the ways we describe it is, that if, if you only want to talk about how all of humanity is cursed in some way, you would see that the story is mainly prescriptive. It just kind of hands out what has to happen. But if you want to look at your life and admit that I'm like this sometimes, then you might say the story is also descriptive. This is what happens when I give in to anxiety. So I want to look at it from that angle for a little bit this morning, see what we might learn from God's word. Because I have to admit to you, I'm like that sometimes. I get anxious. I get nervous and I don't always make the best decisions. Let's look at what happened. As we talked about a couple weeks ago in chapter two, Adam and Eve find themselves in the garden and they've got a a meaningful job to do. They've got freedom to do it and have any tree of of the garden. And they've got apparently this close relationship with God and close relationship with each other. And then by the end of chapter three, what do we have? we have, we might say, shame. Because now Adam and Eve are hiding from God in the garden. They're no longer walking with God. Something has happened. Um, You probably know that one of the uh, classic differences between guilt and shame, guilt says, I made a mistake. But shame is that deeper sense that says, I am a mistake. Or it's guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. And somehow, Adam and Eve move to shame, but they don't just move to shame. They also move to blame. And one of the things, if I read a little further, we would see that when, uh, when Adam is questioned about the matter, he blames Eve. When Eve is questioned about the matter, she blames the snake. But then also uh, one of the side points is Adam also gets in a dig at God and says, well, now the woman you gave me, it's blame, enough blame to go all around shame and blame. And suddenly life as it was intended to be is not working out very well. How do we know that? Because they clothe themselves and they clothe themselves in fig leaves. Anybody ever bought underwear made of fig leaves? No. As one scholar says, it's, it's uh, tantamount to, to wearing sandpaper aprons. And I think the earliest people, when they talked about the story and read the story, would have just like rolled their eyes, like how can Adam and Eve do something so dumb? Well, shame and blame often lead us into making poor decisions. And sure enough, life in the garden begins to unravel. I have a colleague who used to say this about sin. He said, sin is what happens when you and I set out to be more than we were meant to be and end up becoming less than we were intended to be. Adam and Eve want more than what God has provided for them in the garden. They want more than than the instructions God has given them. And in it, they end up setting in motion a spiral which, which goes down for a bit. So I thought it might be worth just a minute to say, what happened? Well, I think 
uh, in, the, in the face of their anxiety, uh, they gave in to a couple critical things. And here's where I want to bring in the serpent. One way you can talk about the serpent is say, well, the serpent uh, represents the evil one and it's, you know, all his fault. When I was growing up, Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. You can look at it like that. But I like one scholar who said, it's not that the serpent spoke. We should pay attention to what he said. Not that there was a serpent who talked, but what do you say? And basically he said, you can't trust God. God's holding out on you. You know, if you'll eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And so the serpent leads them into an anxious state. And I think it's characterized by a few things. Number one, they're afraid. They're afraid they're missing out. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought that, well, God, God was holding out on you. But they did. They thought God owed them more than what God had given them. And, and that fear uh, led them to get things in motion. And because they were afraid, then they grabbed for control. And they wanted to try to take matters in their own hands. Well, I don't want to depend on God to tell me right from wrong. I want to figure it out for myself. I want this fruit that will give me wisdom. Now, wisdom is not a bad thing. But when wisdom cuts off our relationship and dependence upon God, then it becomes somewhat of a problem. And so they, you know, you can blame it on the serpent, but I, I almost wonder if Adam showed a little bit of a control tendency even before the serpent showed up. Because did you notice what Eve said to the serpent? We can't eat it or even touch it. Those aren't the instructions that God gave Adam. Somebody messed up. Either Eve is not listening well. Now, we don't believe that, do we? Or Adam is holding out on Eve and like doesn't trust Eve to make the right decisions. So So Adam is going to give Eve an extra barrier to keep her away from that tree. So you already see that there's this need for control. There's a wonderful Christian psychologist, Henry Cloud, who says that control is the curse of all relationships. When one person seeks to control another uh, or one group controls another and begins to limit their freedom uh, in inappropriate ways, that's when you know you're heading down a road for trouble. So They act in fear, they act in control, and finally they make the most basic mistake. I don't know that it's true, but the assumption from the text would be God must walk through the garden in the cool of the day every evening. And so one option they had was rather than to talk with the snake about God, they could have waited a few hours and asked God about it themselves. They could have obeyed the commandment for a little bit longer, and then asked God about it. But instead of talking with God, they turn God into an object of discussion. God becomes like a a third party that's kind of out here somewhere and is not part of their, and not part of the discussion any longer with predictable results. Things go bad. They turn on God. They turn on each other. They turn to fig leaves. Well, how can we avoid, because sometimes I'm like this, how can we avoid this in our own life? A few things suggest to me. Uh, The Bible says that the opposite of fear is, anybody? What? Exactly right. Perfect love casts out fear. And so one of the things it reminds me is in my, even when I'm anxious, I need to focus on the people and the, and the ideas that I love most. Focus on the love, not on the fear of what might happen. 
You know, we think about it on July 4th. We think about it on Veterans Day. We think about a Memorial Day. That one of the reasons our country stands is because there are people who sacrifice because they love something more than their own life. Love casts out fear. The ability to get past my fear is uh, equal to how loving I am. Am I willing to love others? And so I think it starts there. Then the second thing is, rather than try to control God or another person, uh, one of the things we might say the opposite of control is trust. Can I trust that God has my best interests at heart? I was listening to a podcast this week and uh, the theologian said this. He said, he defines faith as what kicks in when the atheist thinks it should stop. Let me say it another way. When the average person thinks you shouldn't trust God anymore, that's when trust really kicks in. When it looks like you have waited long enough, when it looks like everything is stacked against you, that, says the theologian, is when trust really kicks in. And and your friends who won't believe in God can't possibly understand how you can hold on in this moment. And trust is that attitude that it's gonna be okay. One way or the other, it's going to be okay. God is, uh, is trustworthy. Um, I heard a, a quote from uh, the late and great uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who, who was asked once about the strange story. It's a strange story where uh, Moses says, God, I want to see your face. And God says to Moses, you can't see my face. You can see my backside. So hide here in the rocks. I'm going to pass by and you can see my backside. It's a strange story. Uh, and, and when I was in Old Testament class, they called it theological mooning. But I knew there had to be something deeper than that. Here's what Heschel says. What it means is sometimes we don't see God in front of us, but when we stop long enough and look back at our life, we see how God has been there doing things. And so trust comes from realization that God has been there and so therefore is, is likely here in this um, moment. Trust is the opposite of control. And trust, along with love, begins to move us into the other place, which is the final thing I would suggest. Instead of making God an object of discussion, we make God a partner in dialogue. Maybe, maybe what Adam, Adam and Eve should have done is pray before they acted. Instead, they decided to engage in a theological debate about what God does and doesn't want with the serpent. And they missed the wonderful opportunity to check with God. And so the ability to slow our life down long enough to check with God becomes also important to avoiding the mistakes that, well, I sometimes make when I'm anxious. And I would just say that if you look at the life of Jesus, these are the things he did. Jesus acted in love, not in fear. Jesus never tried to control. Jesus gave freedom and trusted that God's plan was the right plan. And then, of course, Jesus lived a life of prayer. I think Eden, while it can be lost, can, through trust and love and prayer, be regained. Several years ago, I was in Burundi, and uh, I was at a worship service, and there was a family acting out the story of Adam and Eve. And I began to understand the story in a new way, not because the acting was great, it wasn't, not because the production was high tech, it certainly wasn't, but because the pastor, while they were doing the story, described to me who this family was. And he said, the father and the family had spent years as as an alcoholic, abusing his family, neglecting his family, 
oftentimes nowhere to be found when suddenly he met the Lord Jesus and his life turned around and he came back to his family. He came back, he found steady work. He got invested in the lives of his children again. And now he had made the decision to bring them all back to church several months earlier. And here they were as a family acting out the story of Adam and Eve. What I learned was, Sometimes I mess up and we can lose Eden, but always God is faithful and Eden can be regained.